Acts chapter 8. We'll begin with verse 9, but let's kind of get a running head start. Let's recap a bit of the flow of Acts chapter 8 here at 316. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, which means that from week to week it helps to recap, to just set some context in case you weren't with us last Sunday. Verse 5 will set the stage. We're told that Philip... Philip was one of the seven deacons we were introduced to in Acts chapter 6. We're told that he went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. There was a great persecution that took place in Jerusalem following the death of Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Philip leaves, he goes to Samaria, he preaches Christ. We're told that the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Three points of, of recap. Philip came to the city of Samaria. He crossed lines of prejudice, lines of hate, centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. When Jesus said go, gave his heart a call, filled him with a love, he went to Samaria and he preached, not the politics of the day, not social reform, he just preached Christ. Which is interesting because Luke in the first four verses of Acts 8 tells us that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, which is interesting. So everyone, including Philip, who's scattered, is preaching the word, but Philip here, as he goes to Samaria, is preaching Christ. Is that a discrepancy? I think not. For the way to preach Christ is to preach the word. Even in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, Jesus is known as the word of God. And so he preaches the word, he preaches Christ, he preaches a person. No doubt he goes to this city and he tells the folks what Jesus came and did and how that changed his life. It wasn't deep theology. It wasn't systematic orthodoxy. It was just a person that he knew, that he had encountered, that it changed his life. And we're told that this great awakening that occurred in Samaria took place because the people not only heard the message of Philip, but they saw power coming from his life, which we noted last Sunday is an important combination. May our lives reflect the power that we speak. May our lives validate the message that we say. So often within Christianity and how we're perceived by the world, we're known as hypocrites because in a lot of senses, the words that we say and the lives that we live don't connect. We left this thought last Sunday. What makes you any different from the world around you? You claim to have encountered the resurrected Lord that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, has indwelled your life, that you're no longer your own, you've been bought with a price, it's Christ living in you, working in righteous ways. So shouldn't you be different than the world around you? Shouldn't there be something tangible that can be seen in your life? It's interesting, Jesus says that we're to be salt, that's to be tasted, and light, that's to be seen. Never mentioning what we say. Your life communicates a message. What message that is, that's for you to decide. And as a result of these things, Luke says that there was great joy in that city. Happiness. While happiness is an inner emotion created by outside stimulation, joy is an inner state that yields outward manifestations. You see, there's a difference between being happy and having joy. 
we see that there wasn't just a happy, there was joy. There was something deep within inside of them that had changed. The result of this movement of God in Samaria produced a real joy in the lives of these individuals and thus the lives of this city corporately, a joy that transcended circumstances existing in the lives of these believers. You know, I think it's tragic that Christians have developed this negative perception as being relatively grumpy people. Christians are known to be grumpy, to be frumpy, to be irritable, to get on soapboxes. You know, we should be known by our joy. But how often are we known because we're angry about the politics of the day? I think it's sad. I think it's sad that in a lot of sense, the fundamental driver of our daily attitude is not the joy of the Lord produced by the indwelling spirit of God, but is the ups and downs of work or the latest decision of President Obama or the dogs, the Falcons, the blundering Braves. It's true. We allow way too much to dictate to become the, the fundamental driver of our attitude when it should be the spirit of God. That people can see your life and they know what your job is like, maybe your coworkers. They see that, man, things are miserable. We have a new boss and he's a jerk. And things have changed in the office and everyone's miserable. But man, that guy, I know he's dealing with all of the things we're dealing with, but there's something different. Like, yeah, the job stinks right now. But man, there's some joy. Like there's something that's, that's, that's transcending all of these things. What is the fundamental driver of your emotions, of your attitude? Well, verse nine, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries. He had done this for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued Philip. He was amazed. He, he saw these miracles and the signs which were being done. In the midst of this great, incredible awakening in Samaria, Luke singles out and focuses his attention, his, his narrative on an interesting character. Historically, we know him as Simon the Sorcerer. He's introduced as that Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. This Greek word, sorcery, magnoi, it means to be a magician or to practice magical arts. Some have presumed that Simon was nothing more than an illusionist. And yet the etymology of this word indicates that it's very possible that Simon practiced some form of black magic, the dark arts. Magnoi comes from the ancient word magos, 
which was given by the Babylonians to wise men or magi, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers, and as one scholar said, sorcerers. It seems very likely that Simon may have even practiced some of the evil mystical arts known for the ancient Babylonians. Now, whether Simon's magic was real or not, it's clear from the text he was so compelling at his craft that beyond being astonished, people perceived him to be the great power of God. He wowed the audiences, but he had tricked them into thinking he was someone he actually wasn't. This phrase, the great power of God, has some messianic overtones, meaning it's evident that Simon had used his power, whether it was sleight of hand or real black magic, to develop this great standing among the people that he had been sent by God. In many ways, Simon is what we would call an antichrist. Now that's a loaded word in Christian circles, often meaning things that it shouldn't. An antichrist is literally someone who's not opposed to Christ or is in opposition, like we would use like to be anti something, to be anti the Braves would be to be against the Braves. That's not what the word means. To be an antichrist means that you're standing in the place of that thing. You're a replacement. So to be an antichrist means that you are a replacement Christ. And in this sense, Simon fits the description. He was seen as being the great power of God, that he was a replacement Christ. However, once the people had accepted Jesus as the real Christ, Simon's influence, it immediately dissipated. You know, the easiest way to expose a counterfeit is to compare it with the original. Simon no longer had a following after Philip came and introduced Jesus. Luke tells us in the midst of this mass revival, the Samaritans... <laughs> They're giving their lives to Jesus. There's incredible things. They're responding to the preaching of Philip. And even Simon, look at it. Simon believed, was baptized, and continued with Philip. This word believed, it's a significant word. And it's not used by accident. In the Greek, it's the word pistoi, which we find, ironically, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, pastoi, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Same word. Simon believed, was baptized, continued with Philip. It appears not only was Simon a genuine convert, he was a, a real follower of Jesus. But in response to this, what does he do? He's baptized. He goes and he takes his faith public. He makes an outward declaration of an inward transformation. And beyond that, he continues at the church and he's personally mentored by Philip. That's the text. Now, verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, we're told they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had not fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, this is kind of where our text takes a bizarre turn. It's, it's kind of like there's some, 
some weird implications nestled buried down within our text. Now, the setting, it's simple. Word of this incredible work, it reaches back to Jerusalem. The apostles catch wind that a revival is breaking out in Samaria. So they send Peter and John to check things out. And it would appear that after a quick evaluation, Peter and John recognized that something was missing. Yes, Philip had preached the word. Yes, they had received the word. Yes, they had been baptized. Yes, they were being mentored. Yes, there was all kinds of awesome things happening in and through the lives of these Samaritans, but something was just a little awry. Something wasn't quite complete as though the sentence was still being written and there had not been a period placed quite yet. They evaluate that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus And their conclusion is that they needed to receive the Holy Spirit for as yet, he had not fallen upon any of them. Now, on one aspect, we know that since the Samaritans believed, same word we find in John 3, 16, the issue of concern for Peter and John was not their salvation. These Samaritan believers were bona fide, born again, Jesus followers. Jesus even said in John 3, 36, He who believes, pastoi, in the Son has everlasting life. So the issue is not salvation. Instead, what seems to be lacking in the lives of these Samaritans boiled down to an interaction that they had yet to experience with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you recall back in our second study in the book of Acts, the ministries of the Holy Spirit, there are three in totality. And there are three based upon the idea that we find three Greek prepositions used in regards to the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that these Samaritan believers had already experienced the para-ministry of the Spirit of God. The Greek word para, or in English with, meaning to come alongside of, describes the work of the Spirit convicting the world of sin in order to draw them to Jesus. Every person ever born experiences this ministry, the Spirit convicting of sin, bringing to Christ. We also know from context that the issue also couldn't have been the second ministry or this in, E-N, ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word in, or in English I-N, meaning to come within, describes the secondary work of the Holy Spirit upon salvation, regeneration, the Spirit comes within. The Spirit is with us, the Spirit is in us, so it seems, because they're saved, that the issue of concern was the third ministry of the Holy Spirit, this epi-ministry, whereby the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer for the purpose of power. Look back at the text, you'll notice something. What concerned Peter and John? It was that the Holy Spirit had not yet, what? Fallen upon them, this word epi. Now back in the first few verses of Acts chapter one, Jesus had commanded his disciples to not depart from Jerusalem, but to go, to wait for what? For the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus knew that these believers needed the Holy Spirit, not just with them or in them, but upon them. Jesus recognized that they could do nothing effective for the kingdom of God until the Spirit came upon them for power. This passage, it reinforces the reality that there is a noticeable difference between a follower of Christ, 
which is what the Samaritans were, and a spirit-filled follower of Christ. There's a difference between the two. You see, this, the distinction comes back to the reality of the power in which you're following Christ. You can be a follower of Jesus in the flesh, in the spirit, in yourself, or secondly, you can be a follower of Jesus in the spirit of God. In his book, Christ Indwelling and Enthroned, J. Oswald Sanders wrote this concerning this third ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one of my favorite books. Changed my life in regards to my understanding of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of obscure. At c316.tv at the bottom, I included a link to Amazon where you could buy the book. I'd encourage you all to do so and to read it. It's a fantastic book. But he says this. He says, you're not asking God to give you the Holy Spirit as a person for he's already done that. You're asking him in response to your absolute surrender to impart his fullness so that you may have the spirit dwelling in you in the full and unhindered exercise of all of his divine attributes. He later writes, God desires your whole being to be placed entirely at his disposal, not just your time or your talent or your money, but you, your whole self. You see, being spirit-filled, it's not a title that can be earned achieved, or for that matter, awarded. Being spirit-filled is a condition that's to be experienced through a continued, personal, intimate interaction with the Spirit of God. Once again, Sanders writes, if your business is to prosper, it must ever be kept in mind that you are dealing not with an influence or a law, but with a person, a partner, with whom you can have intimate fellowship and communion. You know, if the individuals who make up the church, it's you and I, if we aren't experiencing, aren't living, aren't engaging, aren't placing ourselves under the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're trying to live the life of Christ in our own ability, then the church itself becomes nothing more than a spiritual nursing home whose principal purpose ends up being caring for dying, powerless, cranky people, as opposed to being spirit-filled, in which we become a spiritual base camp, whereby spiritual warriors come in every Sunday to check in, to chow down, to gear up so that we can do this. We can go back into the battle. I don't know about you, I don't want Calvary 316 to be a nursing home for the dying. I want it to be a base camp where we can gather together, encourage one another, chow down and be fed and go back into our ministry, the ministries that God has called each of us to. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon provides this stark warning we should all consider. He says, a church in the land without the spirit is rather a curse than a blessing. If you have not the spirit of God, Christian worker, remember that you stand in someone else's way. You are a fruitless tree standing where a fruitful tree might grow. It's heavy. They come and they recognize, well, okay, they've experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced regeneration. They're saved. They're followers of Jesus. But man, they just seem weak. Something's missing. Something's awry. Something's not right. Man, they just seem powerless. Ah, 
It must be that they've yet to receive the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit has not yet come upon them. And so Peter and John do what? They lay hands on these Samaritan believers and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's convenient, that's helpful, but take heart. For if you feel powerless, if you feel as though you need that fresh, continued filling of the Holy Spirit, that you feel like you're dying, that you're, enthusiasm is waning, that your energy is dissipating and you need strength. Well, Jesus said, it's so simple. In Luke chapter 11, he simply says, your heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those that hunker down and do their best. No, no, instead to those who ask. You see, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is simply a matter of the believer asking and then receiving. Now, on a side note, and this is important, student of scripture, that while we see that there was some type of supernatural manifestation that takes place, we'll see it because Simon tries to buy it in a few verses, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, it should be pointed out something that's missing from our text. So there's the Samaritans, Peter and John come, they see that the Spirit hasn't come upon them, or what we'd call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on them, they receive. There's something supernatural that occurs that's, you can't argue that point, but what's missing is a specific reference of the gift of tongues. In Acts 2, tongues is mentioned, Acts 10 and Acts 19, but in this passage, it is missing. Which tells me that contrary to what some extreme factions of the Pentecostal movement might believe. The gift of tongues is not the singular evidence of salvation, nor of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If so, clearly Luke would have said that they spoke in tongues. Further evidence that validates this point can be found in 1 Corinthians 12, verses seven through 11, and again, 29 and 30. Now, before we move on, we should consider why Philip didn't initiate this process? Why he didn't recognize that they were missing this third interaction of the Holy Spirit? Like, why did Philip wait for Peter and John to come and do this? Like, is there something unique about Peter and John that they had to do it or that they were the only ones that could do it? Some have even tried to twist this by saying that this third ministry of the Holy Spirit, it was only for the apostolic age. You see, Philip couldn't initiate it. He was just a lowly deacon. It had to be left for Peter and John. Now, when you're examining this particular topic, and I just think this way, I couldn't find one commentator to, to actually provide an explanation. Like no one dared take the question, why didn't Philip do anything? Like, why did it take Peter and John? And the more I thought about it, I've got two theories. I'll share them with you. They might be right, they might be wrong. I think they make sense. You see, I think Philip maybe didn't initiate this, this, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit because he wanted that it was intentional. He desired a delegation of Hebrew apostles to initiate and witness this special act so that the Samaritans' conversion would be seen as authentic. Now, don't forget that the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And though Philip might have been the one guy to cross the barrier, no doubt back in Jerusalem, there might have been some skepticism, which would indicate why Peter and John came to begin with. 
but that this act of the Spirit coming upon someone, because it produced in some ways a, a physical, visual manifestation, that that would give evidence. In Acts chapter 11, Peter will reference specifically to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit among the household of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, as evidence for the genuineness of their conversion. Maybe this is Philip just wanting to hold back till Peter and John got there to just break down the wall once and for all. Could be. Secondly, and I think probably more, more apt, more, more relevant, is that he didn't initiate the work because the Samaritans hadn't asked for it. Maybe, maybe Philip had been teaching them about the Holy Spirit, but they had, they had yet to ask. They had yet to recognize their need. Understand, while the apostles explained what these believers were lacking, they diagnosed the problem, they presented the solution, the passage never claims that the apostles forced the Holy Spirit upon any of them as if it was some involuntary act, like Benny Hinn let the bodies hit the floor, like he's just knocking people down, whether you wanna be knocked down or not, like some Jedi mind power. Like that's not what's happening. You see, the idea of laying on of hands indicates that there was some type of solicitation made by the Samaritans that the Samaritans recognized at the teaching, at their diagnosing of the problem, that there was uh, something missing from their lives. They recognized they needed this power. They finally reached the point where they're desperate. And so they come to Peter and John and they're like, can you pray for us to receive? We want this desperately. And so Peter and John are laying hands, praying, and the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. I hope you keep in mind that while I, nor one of our elders, why we can pray for you, and we can even act as a connecting point for your faith. Please understand what we can't do. I can't ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. I wish I could, that'd be awesome. You know, close the Bible study and say, Holy Spirit, come upon us all, and boom. We're all like filled, energized, super warrior Christians going out and changing. I wish I could do that. I can't do that. You see, when it comes to this role of the Holy Spirit, it's a request only honored by God when the believer, the individual believer, recognizes his need and humbly asks and then boldly receives. We can be a connecting point of faith. After the service, me or Larry or Andy or Chad or Joe, we can pray for you and lay hands on you just like Peter and John. And that might be a connecting point for your faith and we can lead you in a prayer whereby you ask, but we can't ask for you. You can ask for yourself. And guess what? You don't need us either. You can ask at home. You can ask during the worships. You can ask at any point, knowing that your heavenly father gives freely to his children who ask. Well, verse 18, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, clearly there had to have been some manifestation, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. That was real nice. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, why the flaw in Simon's request was quickly diagnosed by Peter. (laughs) You thought that the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, could be purchased with money? I could see his jaw hitting the floor, his tongue rolling out. Are you kidding me? Come on, man. While Peter addressed that particular issue, the deeper sin was obvious to the apostle. It was evident. He says, your heart is not right in the sight of God. He says, you're silly to think that you could buy the gift of God with money. But beyond that, Simon, your heart, there's something wrong. You know, in thinking this gift could be purchased, Simon's inward intentions become publicly exposed. And Peter pinpoints the core issue by saying that Simon was poisoned by bitterness. Now, Simon, he was used to being the big dog in town. He loved the power that came with his notoriety. He was it. He was the man. He was the great man of God. And yet, since Philip had arrived preaching Jesus, all of that power and that fame and that notoriety, well, it had all dissipated. It had vanished. After encountering the real Messiah, no one saw Simon as being anything great. And it appears that over time, We don't know how long, could have been right from the beginning, that Simon grew bitter and green with envy. While it is admittedly uncertain if he held a disdain for the work of God, it is clear that Simon resented the way that God was using Philip. Philip was the man. He was rallying the troops. He was the individual people were coming to. Simon was now a disciple. He was no longer the center of attention. In essence, Simon was kind of upset because he had lost all of his worshipers. You know, on a side note, it's a dangerous thing for a Christian to grow envious of the work of God, the work that God is accomplishing in and through another believer. Being envy of what God is doing in and through someone is a dangerous place to be, friend. And not only that, speaking to myself, It's also dangerous to be envy of the work that God might be doing through another church. Well, because of his bitterness, this bitterness that had taken root, poisoned, the well of his soul had been gripped with this bitterness. Peter continues by saying that Simon was also, note, bound by iniquity. Literally, the old King James says, in the bonds of iniquity. You see, Simon was not interested in the person of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he saw the power of the Spirit as being a potential means to an end. It might be a way that he could compete with Philip. Philip's got this cool trick. Peter and John, they have this cool trick. They can pray, they can lay hands, the Spirit comes upon them. I can't do that. If I could, then maybe I could, I could get in on the act. You know what I'm saying? This is how he's thinking. This is how he's processing. Simon saw the work of God as a way to further the influence of Simon, that's dangerous. 
It's a sad indictment of today's church, but there are many people who, like Simon, only see the Holy Spirit as a means to an end. They covet the power of the Spirit, but are not as interested in the person behind the power. May, not, may that not be you and I. Now, there's one thing about this story that I think should jump out that demands a little attention, and that is the way that Peter deals with Simon. I mean, I mean we live in a very PC world where we kind of take the angle of, of error erring more on the side of, of being sensitive to people's emotions and, 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 and trying to temper what we want to say, like covering it as much as we can in honey. But Peter like just drops the sword. Like he just goes right to the heart, right to the jugular. Your money perish with you. Like, whoa. You don't hear too many pastors saying things like that these days. But he had a right to do so because Simon was an heir. Like what Simon was doing was wrong. What he was requesting was abominable. It was a bad deal. And so Peter, as a leader, he deals with this situation in the presence of a clear wrongdoing with boldness, with some zeal, with a backbone, a spine. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't try to like, like tiptoe around it. No, he goes right to the issue and he does it in such a way that I think there's a lot we can learn because I have found that like dealing with people that need rebuke is kind of a normal part of life. If you have kids, you understand this. Like sometimes we have to correct people. You might be in a job where you have a coworker who's just being a pain in the neck, who's not doing the right thing. And you as the supervisor, you have to deal with this. Conflict exists in life. But I think we can learn from Peter in regards to the best way to go about it. First, Peter wisely diagnosed the core issue in Simon's life. See, while Peter didn't allow the surface issue of trying to purchase the gift of God to go unaddressed, Peter wisely moved beyond the present problem in order to go to the deeper issue in Simon's life that was producing such an outlandish request. It would have been easy for Peter to have just rebuked him about asking to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit and never actually get to the core problem. You see, his request was being produced from something deeper and that deeper issue was what needed to be dealt with. He moves beyond the surface. You see, in many instances, the immediate issue is never the core problem. And we can get distracted by always dealing with immediate issues as opposed to pausing for a moment and digging deeper and dealing with the root. As Christians, we need to use wisdom in handling such situations so that we can avoid the distraction of constantly dealing with withering limbs instead of addressing the rotting trunk. So Peter wisely diagnosed the core issue in Simon's life. It wasn't the request. It was, he was poisoned by bitterness. It was that he was bound by iniquity. But then secondly, Peter boldly speaks to the heart behind these core issues. While he makes it clear that there was rotting fruit on the tree, Peter boldly tells Simon, what? His heart was not right in the sight of God. This Greek word right, it means straight, level, true, sincere. You know, in our current Christian culture, we've tragically warped the meaning of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter seven, verse one, when he tells us, do not judge 
or you too will be judged. You know, many people believe that it's not the right of any other human being to judge the heart of another. You hear, you can't judge me. That's only God. You can't, you don't know my heart. Well, if this is the case, that we're not allowed to judge one another, then how do you explain the actions of Peter? He clearly makes a judgment, poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity. You know what? Your heart isn't right. He looks at the fruit. He diagnoses the problem with the tree. Also, how do you explain, if we're not to judge one another, the biblical exhortation to beware of evildoers or false prophets or to avoid those who practice evil? if we can't make judgments. How do you explain Jesus's admonishment in John 7 verse 24 to judge with a righteous judgment? You see, in this case, Peter, he had the boldness to bluntly point directly to Simon's bitterness and iniquity as evidence that his heart was not in right standing with God. In Luke chapter six, Jesus tells us that a tree can be known by its fruit. That's all that Peter's doing. He looks at the fruit, he diagnoses the tree. When making these type of judgments, Jesus cautions against making uninformed or worse, hypocritical judgments. The whole passage where Jesus says, the speck in a brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own, the issue is not that we should judge, but that you shouldn't be a hypocrite. Like, why should you really be concerned with the speck in someone else's when you've got a plank extending out of your own? Like, deal with your own junk first before you go around being the PC police. But here's the deal. When we handle such matters, we should do so with love. We should do so with grace. But we should do so with boldness. If you see sin in the life of a believer, a brother or sister, it is your Christian duty and responsibility to confront the individual. If you ignore the problem, the problem won't ignore you. Third thing that we pull out from this passage is that Peter swiftly administered immediate consequences. Even before giving Simon a chance to repent, following his judgment that his heart was not right because of bitterness and iniquity, Peter swiftly administers an immediate consequence. He tells Simon that he had neither part nor portion in this matter. And in doing so, he was making it clear that Simon would not have the privilege of enjoying any type of spiritual leadership in the church. Because Simon's motivations were based in envy and a selfish desire for power and influence, Peter, right from the beginning, says, you will not have an opportunity to act upon these impulses. While the consequences were measured, it, and they were immediate, they oozed wisdom. Finally, Peter graciously presented a path for restoration. He tells Simon, repent and pray for forgiveness. Simon had shown his true colors and there were unavoidable consequences for this behavior, but he still gives him a way to be restored. All Simon had to do in order to experience the grace of God was to repent and ask for it. Sadly, he doesn't either. Verse 24, we're told that Simon answered and he said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which which you have spoken may come upon me. (laughs) 
hardly the cry of repentance. And in many ways, it probably highlights the full extent of Simon's misunderstanding of the Christian experience. To not understand that he couldn't pray for forgiveness on his own. You know, the great question, though, that theologians have wrestled with is whether or not Simon was a genuine believer. On one side of the equation, you have those who argue that Simon was a believer. He just made a horrible mistake. And these proponents of this position, they'll point to to the things like that he responded to the preaching of Jesus, that Luke says he believed in Jesus, that he was baptized, that he was mentored by Philip, that he continued in the church, all evidence of genuine conversion. On the other side, some say, well, Simon never genuinely converted. Their contrary arguments is that how can a man bound by iniquity whose heart is not right with God, really be considered a born-again believer. Proponents of this position believe that Peter was skeptical of Simon right from the beginning, which is why he handled him in such a heavy-handed way. And his statement, your money perish with you, indicates Simon or Peter's belief that Simon was actually headed towards destruction. Warren Wiersbe, who takes this position, writes in his commentary on Acts 8, This episode only shows how close a person can come to salvation and still not be converted. Simon heard the gospel, saw the miracles, gave a profession of faith in Christ and was baptized, and yet he was never born again. He was one of Satan's clever counterfeits. And yet, had Peter not exposed the wickedness of his heart, Simon would have been accepted as a member of the Samaritan congregation. Others who seek to reconcile the two positions will say that Philip, was genuinely convinced of Simon's conversion, but he had fallen prey to the the ploy of a really good con artist, that Simon was playing a long con all along. Others speculate that Simon maybe had initially been a believer, but if he refused to repent, was now in danger of losing his faith or at least walking away from it, as some might claim. Now, as to the answer as to whether or not Simon was a believer or pretender, I'll leave it for you to decide. They all might be right. They all might be wrong. And I don't dodge the issue because it is a point of controversy, but because I don't think it matters. Like, I don't think that's the point of the text. You know, for clarity, it's always important to consider the reason why Luke includes the things that he does in the book of Acts. You know, I believe that this story was written in such a way so that the reader was left contemplating the important issue of repentance as it pertained to Simon specifically. Though the passage doesn't tell us what happens to Simon, Luke may have left off a resolution because most within the church were already aware of what became of him. Most historical accounts, and this is dominant in the writings of the early church fathers, claim that Simon the sorcerer went on from this encounter with Peter to form a new counter-movement to Christianity known as Gnosticism. It was a perfect blending of Christian themes with pagan ideas and practices. Sounds a lot like Simon. Now, while we understand why Philip taking the gospel into Samaria was a significant moment that demanded inclusion in the narrative of Acts, I'm convinced that Luke pins this story of Simon the sorcerer to set the record straight about Simon. 
about his interactions with Peter and ultimately the origins of Gnosticism, that this guy who started this new religion, it was based in his refusal to repent and his greed for power. One narrative of particular and related interest claims that in order to demonstrate his greatness, to instill trust in his followers, many years later, Simon would have his followers bury him alive. He claimed that three days later, he would emerge resurrected. But without surprise, three days later, Simon failed to emerge. His body was found putrefying. Now here's the lesson that we can take away from Simon's life and why it's included in Acts. When a person refuses to repent, there is no extent by which he'll go to justify his wicked actions. And in the end, this very resistance to the work of God will become his undoing. As Christians, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna fall into sin, you're gonna err. No one's perfect. Even in following Jesus, no disciple is perfect. But it's what you do when you make that mistake. It's what you do when you trip up that matters. Do you repent? Do you come back and ask for forgiveness to be restored? Do you accept the consequences? Do you go with the flow? Simon didn't. And in the end, his resistance to repentance killed himself over it. It led to him being buried alive. And you know, I know many of people that because their refusal to repent died the same way, a self-inflicted wound, as though we're digging our own grave when all we have to do is just stop. About face, Jesus never runs from you. We often run from Christ. So this morning, if you're in that mode, Stop, about face, come back to Jesus. And if you feel empty, like you got nothing in the tank, then this morning, may you pray and just ask that you might be filled anew with the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're told, verse 25, that when Peter and John had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And so, Father...